And a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists, Nina Dos Santos and John Everard, dissect the week's big stories. Good morning, John. All well with you, I hope. What have you found? What have I found? I've been wading through the papers of my recent deceased father and I've discovered he dedicated the last two years of his life to trying to develop a radical new electrical vertical takeoff engine. And he was going to sort of launch lot of patents for this and make us all fantastically rich. We, Tragically, death intervened. We shall find out in a little while. Also, we'll get the latest from Istanbul. I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith and from Turkey, I'm going to be talking about climate change and drone sales. Plus Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtzoff will bring us the latest from Helsinki's Flow Festival this weekend. It's the 13th of August 2023. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you, or good afternoon to you, depending on where you're listening and when you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. It's Emma Nelson here, joined, I am delighted to say, by John Everard and Nina Dos Santos. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, having navigated the coffee machine, which tends to have a little bit of a temper tantrum on a Sunday morning. Not only did I get to, to make coffee, I actually got to make the coffee I wanted. I, I feel a, a glow technical achievement. I do hope we've recorded that, because that may be a rarity. But, I you know, right. well, well done. How about you, Nina? How's your week been? A full-on cappuccino with foam. Wonderful. Good way to start the Sunday morning. Week has been great, yeah. Still trying to uh, escape the British summer mm. and wondering when the sun might fleetingly shine, although mm. it appeared to make a comeback on sort of Thursday. But I think it feels like many of us are resigned to September kicking in early at this point. Right? I had big old case of the blues yesterday when I opened my wardrobe and realised that not only had I not taken, you know when you have to do that little changeover, kind of yeah. May-June time. The Italians you take- call it cambio di stagione. Exactly. Season. You have your season change and then you take your, your heavyweight stuff and you put it away and you get your lightweight stuff out. I haven't actually done that yet and I'm not going to this year. That is it. Do you have a cambio di stagione, John? No, 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 no. <laughs> all we're, all we're the, the same clothes all you? the way through. <laughs> and this is a man who knows the realities of life. I'm afraid so. That's right. Yes, the British summer, forget it. No, absolutely. It's been an absolute misery and everybody's been, everyone's sort of, yeah, and, and then you see the, the 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 night's getting a bit darker and then you suddenly realise that you've become a, a sort of an, a 95-year-old man and talking about, talking about the seasons in England. But I have been in Denmark for a couple of days and the weather was glorious there one day until Storm Anthony caught up with us and it went straight back to the British weather. Okay. So even Scandinavia wasn't able to deliver this season. For oh, no. this is I know I have friends who say it's been like 20, 17 in Tallinn, but they quite like it. Um, and I realised last week I was in I was in the warmer climes in the south of France. And I realised that my son actually hates hot weather, which means that I actually cannot ever talk to my son again because I need sand between the toes and a, you know, a, a draft of the warm south quite regularly. How about you, John? Where where, where do you stand on hot weather and, and, and escaping? I I spend a lot of my life on a bicycle. So hot weather I, I, I love up to a point. Um, but cold weather is much easier because if it gets really cold, you can compensate just by putting on more and more layers. If it gets really hot, you know, there are limits to what you can do. Well look, let's head to uh well, let's head to somewhere which hopefully has been enjoying some decent weather and uh, is lovely in northern. We're going to start by going to Helsinki to hear from Petri Burtsov. Uh, he's at Flow, one of Europe's longest running inner city music festivals that might soon have to move a very good Good morning to you, Petri. How are things where you are? And indeed, where are you? 
Good morning, Emma. Things are lovely and sunny. Uh, I'm two days into a three-day uh, festival, and I do apologize for having lost my voice somewhat. I was singing to uh, the Kiwi artist Lord uh, quite late last night, and only got a few hours of sleep. Um, but uh, all set with some strong uh, espressos to uh, get into the groove again for the for the third and final day of this wonderful festival. This is a bit of a running theme on Monocle on Sunday, Petri, because every time you ring in, Petri's troubles seem to involve staying up really late, being somewhere lovely, having a nice time in your summer house, or generally having a nice life. How much fun is it being Petri Bertsoff? <laughs> oh, Emma, I, I, I wish uh, my life was always like this, but flow, flow takes place only once a year and it's not every week and I, 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 I get to do these kinds, uh, kinds of parties. And I do have small, two small kids, so, you know, it's, it's not all, um, all, all, all partying, but, you know, I, I try to have fun. Well, if it's about partying, it generally involves lots of screaming and jelly. Um, let's talk about flow. What is flow? Right. So Flow, as you mentioned, is uh, an inner city music festival. And I would actually call it more than just a music festival because there's also art involved. There's food involved. It's it's It kind of gathers everybody in Helsinki. It's into this sort of summer ending ritual uh, of, of getting together. And it's, uh, you know, Finns, we've spoken about this before with you, Emma. Finns like to sort of escape to their summer cabins and, and to the islands in the summer. And they all come back for Flow. So that's where you meet up with your friends and catch up and, and eat wonderful food also. That's something I have to mention because a lot of Helsinki's best restaurants, you know, you have Michelin star restaurants doing festival uh, food at, at Flow. I think there's like 20 or 30 different types of uh, of good restaurants there as well. And, you know, drinking champagne and, and good wine and listening to wonderful music. It's just a, um, probably the people at Flow wouldn't want me to describe it that way, but I just like to call it a civilized adult festival where you don't have to have your toes in the mud and and sort of sleep in a tent you can you can go go back home because it's right in downtown Helsinki and you know you can just have a wonderful splendid good time uh, in a in a civilized adult way and mind you singing a little bit and and slightly hungover but still oh you're such a grown up petri um let's i mean if you look at the kinds of bands that were there i mean we've got what blur we've got suede we've got tuvalu i mean tuvalu probably ex- accepted but when you when you look at those kinds of bands you think well yes i can understand why it appeals to a certain age because the bands who are playing i mean they're globally recognized but but they might be marketed for someone who might have two small children and doesn't want to get their toes muddy yeah, well, you know what? Those are the headliners this this year, but they do have a lot of alternative acts as well. And they, there's a lot of hip hop. I went to listen to somebody called uh, Pusha T last night. I had never heard of the name. Apparently, one of the most famous U.S. rappers uh, there is. But I quite enjoyed dancing, dancing to him. So it's not only this sort of 80s, 90s. Uh, big names, but yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Lord, uh, Lord as well. And then there's a lot of what I like is it's such an eclectic mix because they also have they always every year they have this. Um, bands from from various parts of Africa playing like jazz and they have a Nigerian rap they had Burner Boy last year they had Wizkid this year so some of the biggest names in sort of African African music as well and it's just you know that that's um that's part of the fun of going to Floyd you have these big names but you always every year you discover something something new and last but not the least they have a kids disco so we're actually heading there with the kids today in the afternoon then the kids go home to uh, their grandparents and the parents can continue partying uh, well into the night you've got this absolutely sorted out haven't you so just tell us a little bit more about the, this is this is a golden moment for flow isn't it because it's it came back last year after the pandemic it's fully in its stride now but there are issues ahead for it aren't there 
Yeah, so so as we mentioned in the in the start of the show, it is an inner city festival, and it's it's uh, located in it's organized in this uh, sort of a former industrial, I, I believe it was a former gas works of some kind um, area, um, and the city of Helsinki has has decided to develop this uh, sort of a multiplex commercial um, uh, large scale uh, music arena uh, in 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 that same area, and that basically just forces this. Uh, these festivals to to move out and and search for a venue some somewhere else and flow already actually announced that this year would be their last year um, but then they extended into the next year because apparently there was some 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 trouble with the building permits for this new arena but then last year will be the the last one and and of course flow will continue but the question is where Will it continue? If it has to move into the suburbs, like most of most of the festivals in in Europe, then it just won't have this same feel because it's such a key part of the city's identity. I can't think of any other festival in Europe that is local that is that is organized right in the downtown and still gets a hundred thousand people and outdoors and plays music uh, well well into the night. So it's a it's a shame if it has to has to go. But uh, but let's see. I've heard rumors that they are in talks of uh, relocating to the uh, Olympic Stadium, which is also in in downtown. Downtown, but these are just rumors. So let's see. What loss will it bring? I mean, you talked about the atmosphere that it creates, but in terms of, I don't know, promoting local businesses, keeping things, you know, keeping the cent- the, ci- the, ci- the center of the city alive. To have something like Flow in the in the heart of Helsinki surely has been doing an awful lot of good for everyone. So why do they need to move it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I fully agree with you. It it plays a, such a key part for the for the city's sort of cultural identity. It brings a lot of visitors here, and it also for brand Helsinki. I I think it uh, sort of paints a picture of a city that uh, that is tolerant uh, to to music festivals in 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 the inner city. So, you know, if if all of that has to uh, has to move out to the suburbs, then I think it's uh, it sends the 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 wrong kind of signal in 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 this this day and age. But I, I guess the reason for moving is that they the city wants to. I mean, I, I don't think the city is making much money with uh, with this sort of an abandoned industrial area right in the middle of the city. So they want to build it into something more more commercial and 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 um, yes, you know, just I think it's mostly a financial consideration. How good is are the Helsinki authorities at, at reading the? And noticing what citizens want and what is essentially good for for the future of the of the capital. Well, the thing is, I mean, they're usually really, really good at listening to the people. They even have this uh, massive, I think, uh, what what is it like a eight million euro budget for citizen initiative. Citizens can just come up with ideas of their own. You know, I want a new park in my neighborhood, and bang, you have the money. But uh, for for some reason, in in this, when it comes to flow, they they. I, I guess they've been listening, but they haven't really been hearing because there's also been we've seen we've seen even mass protest in in defense of uh, of flow, and it's not only flow because the same area also hosts uh, you know the <clears throat> artist residences and and skate parks, and you you know how it tends to be with this sort of autonomous urban abandoned spaces. So um, you know, let's hope that the city will come to its senses, and 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 I know the the plans for this. Uh, New stadium, new uh, multiplex uh, has have they have already been finalized? But let's see. Let's hope that the city finds an alternative inner city space for 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 flow because it would be a massive loss for the city. And fueled by the adrenaline of appearing on Monocle on Sunday and a couple of coffees, what are you going to be bouncing around to later, Petri? 
<laughs> so today uh, I'm really looking forward to, well, I have to say, I mean, I'm a 90s, I'm an 80s kid actually, but I was a teenager in the 90s. So Blur is of course something I really want to uh, want to see. But then I also, there's a there's this uh, Berlin-based uh, uh, electronic band called Moderat that I, I, I really want to see. And then I believe there was a, there was an American uh, saxophone player. I can't. The name escapes me now. I've only had two hours of sleep. Uh, please forgive me. But I, I do want to see him as well. And then it's the kids' disco. Then, uh, then some. Uh, there's this uh, a, a Balinese uh, barbecue restaurant that I didn't have time to try yesterday. So I want to try that and then drink lots of champagne, of course. Okay, so we have a belly bubble of Balinese barbecue and champagne, and we're going to have a bounce around to blur later. Petri Burtsov, I wish you the very best of luck with that. That was Petri Burtsov, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, on the line from the Flow Festival today. Um, when was the last time you pogoed around at a, at a festival? Have either of you two been doing this recently? Because <laughs> they are still a big thing. And what Petri has said now is, dare I say it, am I allowed to say that we are no longer 19? Um, but we Speak still want yourself. To, well, we still want to go out. <laughs> Timeless John Everard. Um, but we still want to go out and have a little bit of fun. Do you do any bouncing? I like the way how he admitted that he was, uh, you know, familiar with 1990s music. <laughs> That's an unfashionable thing to do nowadays, I generally, I think isn't it, it, here I was, in London? I suspect it's come round again, actually. I think, I think the 1990s are suddenly getting a huge resurgence. There was loads of stuff in the papers a few weeks ago about Britpop and Exactly. Et cetera, Somebody et had to correct me on my Britpop era. Um, I think I was out of date by about 10 years. Um, no, the last thing I went to go and see actually was Adele. It was about last year um, and that was in Hyde Park. Mm. So when Petri was talking about, you know, these big concerts in the middle of the city, it did make me think about how Hyde Park is used for that. Um, although the curfews are quite sort of severe, aren't they? Aren't they just? And actually it's quite good fun when you're Stops walking home Stops at 10.30, I think. What's quite funny is when dog. you walk around and everybody leaves at the same time and there were 80,000 people who looked and sound, looked a lot like Adele leaving the concert. Yeah. Didn't, didn't sound like Adele, even though they were all Yeah, she does sound rather out. different when she speaks and when she sings, I might say, actually, <laughs> as a born and bred Londoner. There's a, there's a good thing about the, the BST Hyde Park um, thing that obviously is going to be useful if you're coming to London next year, but um, you don't always have to get a ticket. So we've worked out that there is a spot adjacent to the entrance, which... Uh, we always picnic underneath. And if the wind is blowing in the right direction, you can not only see but hear everything that is going on. So we went to see Adele twice, but through a chink in the wall. And we <laughs> saw Rolling Stones. And you get to see absolutely everybody. I can't remember who we saw this. Oh, we heard Pink this year. Um, so there's that idea that a city can have space for everybody. If you don't want to go and see an enormous concert, you can. Londoners find a way. And you can definitely hear it. And you can definitely, definitely hear it. How about you? Where, where does the cultural compass rest with John Everard? Well, I have to say that you know, 90s music, a, a, a bit too modern for me. I struck gold, of course, because my formative years was 1970s music, and that is now cool. And if I sort of say that, yes, I went to see this band and that band live when they were still young and vibrant, you know, people, people get quite excited. Who did you see? So we can be impressed. It's I, who did I, I, I saw David Bowie before wow, he, the cool. big change before he ever became the Thin White Knight. Um, I saw uh, Dylan live twice. Uh, I saw. I was in Vienna for a while, as you know. I, I saw numerous German groups come to visit, um, like Münchner Freiheit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I love I, them. I, I, really? Yes. Right, let's get some mention of Friday. I saw Nina. Um, and Nina. Yes. Lindisfarne. Uh, I think I you mean, put, you're scraping it with Lindisfarne. But you reckon, we'll, I'll give you Nina. Okay. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Nina. Was that another great cultural blunder? Tush, tush. Well, we have that, we have that great ability now that we can still go out and have fun now, even though we're not supposed to anymore because we're Absolutely. all parents and grandparents. Um, just now we were talking about the, the, the great concert where you know, the, 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 the grannies go home and the kids sort of party well into the night. What do you think the grannies are doing? I bet there's a great little granny rock going on there as well. Massively. <laughs> massively in our house, at least. We have a lot of granny rock. Um, okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what we've been spotting in, in the news. Well, actually, no, John, at the beginning of the of the programme, when I asked you what you'd spotted, I thought you were going to talk about something you saw in the news, but you didn't. You talked about your father. Um, so bring us up to date with, with what this is. This is going somewhere, isn't it? The, the, the fact that you're going through your late father's papers. My last father's papers, and uh, which are extensive. My father was a busy man right up to his, his dying day. And I discovered that in the last few years of his life, he was deeply involved in the development of a revolutionary new vertical takeoff engine. I mean, he's not an engineer. He wasn't an engineer. But he's working close with an engineer to get this thing uh, marketed. That's so why I'm now trying to find out where this lands. Why did he do this? I suspect that the immediate prompt was the partial failure of his equally brilliant scheme to develop a completely recyclable, large-scale uh, flower pot for transportation of trees, uh, which apparently is, if, if you buy a tree internationally, not that I've done this this often, they come in plastic flower pots. And he said, no, though, this is not ecologically sound. We need a recyclable version. And he's working on that. But that patent never quite got filed for reasons I'm still trying to dig out. Tell me what the papers look like, because the picture that you're painting is that you effectively opened a file and it looked like Leonardo da Vinci's early workings on flight. Precisely that. My father, amazing biro scribbles, uh, vertical takeoff engines for the uninitiated, interleaved with complex, detailed patent application documents. It's quite a trove and it's a great thick pile of papers. How did, did you know anything of this? He mentioned he was working on this, but my father loved to tell a good yarn. And I, I have to confess that while he was alive, I kind of dismissed this as just another of his great yarns. But no, lo and behold, he was actually doing it, and the papers show it. Nina, up your sleeve, up the Dos Santos um, uh, sleeves. What What is there lurking? Who Who did what? Was there something that you, any papers that you found in any garages? Uh, not really. Uh, my father's, in terms, my mother's from the northeast, like you, John, here in the UK, um, and, um, you know, much of my family over there, I know very well. I have scant information about my father's uh, family because they come from Myanmar and were displaced um, during the Second World War. So my father was born in Calcutta uh, at the height of uh, the Second World War. And lots of my family is German, Indian, Burmese and Dutch and has been displaced around the world. And my father was born a refugee. So I'm still trying to piece together the pieces. Also because uh, I've lost my father as well recently um, and he died in Africa. But I do think that these stories of what our parents were thinking during these formative years do help us to sort of reassess how we you know, the parents that we knew, how we saw our parents, what their thoughts and aspirations were, particularly career-wise and whether or not they had a second, you know, career. My father, for instance, was a big collector of art and African art, even though he was actually in the commodities trade. I always saw him as a sort of hard, <laughs> hard-nosed metals uh, trader. Um, but actually, it turned out he had a very, very different side and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time collecting African artworks from various parts of Africa, including the ancient Aksumite kingdom of Ethiopia, yeah. Those are the types of interesting things I've learned about my And there's sense. that strange unpicking, isn't there? That I, I mean, I have a garage of stuff that I need to go through that I'm just not facing at the moment. And, you know, we, we, 
my father went to one, two, three, four years ago now, mm. and we still haven't opened the garage because it's like I don't know how we go through this. But you, you've grasped the nettle, John, and you're now trying to find some excellent exquisite Ethiopian art. Part of the problem for me is is that my family's uh, dying thick and fast in different countries and are quite sort of hard to reach because they, they're sort of um, a family that was spread out around the world. Um, I suppose the footprint of colonial legacies of different countries, including Germany, the UK, the Netherlands. Um, and it's quite hard now because some of those countries like, for instance, Myanmar, you know, have become authoritarian states and it's not as easy to trace things back as, as it might have been. Let's move on to the news. Uh, what have you spotted, Jim? Well, there's been quite a lot going on this week. Uh, a, a, a few things caught my attention. I think the, the biggest single thing was the shocking figures on the Chinese economy, uh, which came out uh, sort of midweek and in, in two separate batches. Uh, everybody knew that China's recovery from the COVID pandemic was not going that well. But I don't think anybody really understood just how bad things were. A, a collapse in exports of around 13 or 14 percent, depending on how you measure them. Exports to the United States states down by 23%. Exports to the European Union down by 20.6%. Deflation has kicked in. Uh, We've known for a little while that wholesale prices have been falling, but retail prices in China now are falling too. 21% youth unemployment, higher than Italy. You didn't think it was possible, but they've managed it. Twice the rate of the United Kingdom. to all this, the Communist Party doesn't actually appear to have any sensible answer. Uh, there's a lot of calls for reflation of the economy, putting in lots of government money, but they've been doing that now for, for years, for, for, for decades in different forms. And China is full of half-completed construction projects, skeletons of apartment buildings that are never going to be finished. Uh, and they have encouraged local authorities to plough money into the economy to the extent that at least one province in China, probably more, is now technically bankrupt. I mean, it's, it's, a complete, it's total debt way, way exceeds any reasonable earnings forecast. And uh, to the youth unemployment, the only answer we've seen so far from the authorities has been a big campaign to try to persuade recent Chinese graduates not to be picky about the jobs they take on, that it's okay to be a graduate barista, which, of course, has excited all kinds of cynical comments on the Chinese social media, which the authorities are busy trying to stamp out. This isn't going down at all well. I am so old that I I can remember when uh, that we had this with Japan at the beginning of the 1990s. You have to pinch yourself to remember that up until sort of the mid-80s, the total value of real estate in Japan in dollar terms was greater than the total value of real estate in the United States. It was something that had gone wildly out of kilter. And then Japan just flatlined. It's dangerous to draw too close a parallel, but there are parallels between what is happening in China now, what happened to Japan then, and in Japan this led to what they call the lost decade. Uh, anemic growth, uh, other countries uh, catching up with Japan in terms of economic output, and a general sense that Japan could not, after all, walk on water. And of course this gives a huge, this poses a huge problem domestically for China, because Xi Jinping is working so hard to create an internal image of a, of a robust and healthy and progressive China. And yet we have reports that Chinese economists are told not to use the deflation word, um, that, they, um, that they're all being told to um, avoid speaking negatively about, about um, what 
is going on, simply because the minute that you start to introduce the slightest element of doubt, then this whole veneer of stability starts to crack. Yeah, that's right. I think the Politburo just recently described the economic trajectory of China as tortuous. That was as far as they went. But that's already quite a change in the dynamic that we've heard, this sort of confident dynamic that we've heard right up until the pandemic, isn't it? And indeed, just earlier this year, lots of economists thought that China would roar back into health, that... um, China wasn't securing enough coal for its uh, manufacturing sites to keep the energy flowing and to keep those uh, jobs going. And now, obviously, we can see this stuttering to a halt of, in terms of the ink, disposable income that people have, because it's not just exports to places like the United States and the EU, its biggest customers that China's facing a drop in. It's also imports because people aren't buying much. They're not stimulating the consumer economy, as John was pointing out before, because there's so much money tied up in, yet again, this this bubble in the real estate sector, which is a mistake that, for instance, Japan made. And these comparisons you're talking about, Emma, where, as you were saying, economists are being told, especially in China, don't mention the D word, do not mention deflation. Well, it's a bit late because the Financial Times today is talking already about how Japan and China are crossing each other on the stairs, one of them going up after 20, 30 years, and the other one now starting to come down. And the other thing I would say is that this is a country that is facing a very similar demographic challenge that uh, Japan has faced over the last few years. Um, Its population is ageing. They're producing 11 to 12 million graduates each year. And as you were saying, John, they don't want to become baristas. China's economy is now being rejigged towards a gig economy, and that's not necessarily what the young people want. Briefly, what's gone wrong here? Because we were told up until very, very recently that everything was fine in China and that there was slower growth, but there was nonetheless growth. It would take a long time to answer that question properly. But in very brief terms, China has maintained an investment economy for far too long. While you are growing in double digits, uh, your economy can absorb very large amounts of investment and use that money profitably. As your growth rate naturally starts to fade, investment becomes less and less productive. And you need to move to an economy driven not by investment, but by consumption, ideally domestic consumption, uh, which the Chinese have been trying to do for some time now. With little success, uh, Chinese people save obsessively and they are very reluctant to spend. And with that, the money simply doesn't flow through the economy. Uh, Things are going to get much worse on that front if deflation stays. Because logically, if you are in an economy that's suffering deflation, you cut back your spending even further because things are always going to be cheaper tomorrow than today. So you end up in a very dangerous downward spiral. It's a societal issue as well. I mean, you talk there about the fact that the Chinese are obsessive savers. There's also the issues of of how for decades people have been told to go into the cities and now people are now being told to move out of, of the cities. So you don't just have economic problems, but you have such an entrenched way of life that it's quite hard to, to be flexible, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's the start of problems, as you said. Uh, encouraged to go and move to the cities and then moved out again, that's confusing enough. Encouraged to get the maximum possible level of education when China was trying to outskill the West, uh, ending up with Chinese families 
putting entire family savings uh, into getting a, a, a favoured son or a favoured daughter right up the education scale, then to find that at the end of all this, you don't have a job. That is a social bombshell. And of course, we have this uh, announcement made by Joe Biden earlier on this week that um, there will be a ban on US investment into certain niche areas of, of, of tech. It was described earlier this week on Monocle Radio as building a really, really, really high wall around a tiny garden. But this is a very, very important garden that the, that the Chinese really need really want to protect it is but it was well signaled i have to say and it's sort of a continuation of the trump era policies the irony is that obviously joe biden has really been implementing a lot of what trump talked about and uh, talked about with great fanfare but um it's really this administration that's doing that that was i think we did see a lot of chinese uh, shares and technology in those types of sectors where investment now from u.s firms is banned falling but i think it was priced in i thought what was more interesting over the weekend was joe biden gave a speech at um, a conference or a a political action committee uh, meeting and he said more or less essentially that China could blow up because essentially these societal problems and then the economic mismanagement could turn people against Xi Jinping. And he made this interesting comment that, of course, um, uh, one of his spokespeople thereafter had to try and explain in typical Joe Biden fashion, a bit of a gaffe where he said, you know, we don't want anything bad to happen in China because if bad things, I'm paraphrasing here, happen to bad people, then uh, it's bad for us as well. (laughs) Um, But the question is, is how bad is it going to get? Because obviously the US is curtailing uh, Chinese access to US technologies, particularly in semiconductors. They're trying to develop their own plans and investments to wean themselves off of semiconductors um, from China. Um, And then the question here is, will this lead Xi towards military or any type of other foreign policy adventurism? Because traditionally we often see that, don't we, with autocrats who've reinforced their grip over their own country. They wanted to distract people from the economic mismanagement at home. And that brings us to the question of Taiwan and the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, just tell us a little bit about where you see this going, John, because if you, if, if you know, as Nina was just mentioning there, you know, could China blow up insofar as you have a, a, a massive disintegration of an enormous system? Now, the last time that happened was in the Soviet Union. And the the whole key of all this is, is if you have power which is wide-reaching over a diverse geography, you have to have an incredibly strong central controlling power. I mean, is there any likelihood that what happened in the Soviet Union could even begin to be replicated in a in a country such as China? A likelihood. It's very hard to put probabilities on this. Mm. It is certainly a significant possibility, yes, that the whole thing might just fall apart. Uh, you have, as you say, a, a strong controlling power uh, which presides over a, a huge sprawling empire uh, within China and areas of influence outside it. The problem that Xi Jinping has is that whereas under his predecessor, power was in many ways diffused, uh, that you had uh, different areas of the Chinese state doing different things and that the the actual personal power of the senior leader uh, was much greater than that of, say, a US president, but was not absolute. She, on the other hand, has taken all power into his own hands. And with that comes two problems. Firstly, if you take all power, then you take on also all responsibility. Secondly, you immediately build in bandwidth problems. Uh, the, the Chinese apparatus at the top is simply creaking under the strain of facing so many different problems simultaneously. And it's not at all obvious that it can cope with them. 
Coming back, Nina made the, the the point that this has foreign policy implications. One of the uh, the, the first fruits, if that's the word, uh, of China's recognition of its problems has been this outreach to the United States. I mean, the United States has been trying for a long time now to mend fences with China. And finally, we had the Blinken visit to Beijing back in June, uh, following which uh, the Chinese have agreed uh, with the Americans a series of working groups on thorny foreign policy issues in an attempt to ratchet down the tensions and crucially for China to do something about that huge drop in exports to the United States. For the time being, I suspect we'll have a period where Economic and uh, particularly export concerns are going to be driving Chinese foreign policy. Thank you for that. The time here in London is 9.32. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio is John Everard and Nina Dos Santos. Uh, but first, before we go back to these guys, let's head to Turkey. We can uh, hear now from our correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. A very good morning to you, Hannah. Where are you? Good morning. I'm in Istanbul. And how is it this morning? Uh, actually, it's a bit overcast. It doesn't really feel like summer. We've had um, quite a few weeks of heat waves, so it's a bit of a relief. Indeed, because the last time we've spoken to you, were, the numbers were in the 40s this time, so people are sort of cooling down a little. Yeah, I mean, in Istanbul at least. But, um, you know, I, I unfortunately I'm going to talk about climate change again because it really is the thing that's kind of dominating conversations uh, here in Turkey and in other places too, of course. So um, this week... I spent several days in Western Turkey, um, where there is a lake which over the past couple of years has been entirely dry. This is a lake that used to cover 17 square miles a decade ago, um, and today is, is absolutely empty. It has disappeared, and it's really a sign just of how dramatically the climate is changing, but also of the of the damage that's being wreaked on the environment by dams, which are still being built here in Turkey. Tell us a little bit about these, because this is a, a big um, drive by uh, President Erdogan, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So since Erdogan came to power 20 years ago, he and his government have pursued a huge dam building policy. Yeah, hundreds of dams either completed or uh, in the planning stage or under construction. The latest of those was uh, in a place called Yusufeli, which is on uh, the Black Sea, um, an absolutely huge dam, one of the tallest in the world that's submerged a village. Um, but, you know, it is known, very well known, that dams can often you know, disturb the balance of nature, even when part of the point of them being built is to sort of you know, mitigate the effects of climate change. And that's certainly the case with uh, the dam I visited this week. It's called the Gordes Dam. It was built 10 years ago um, and it was meant to have two purposes, to bring water to a nearby city um, and also to irrigate surrounding farmlands. Now, because of various faults in its design, it's not done that. The water's drained away. And then also at the same time, this nearby lake, um, which took its water from the river that's been dammed, has also dried up. So really, it's been catastrophic. I mean, the the, the whole, as you say, the purpose of a dam is to is you know is to preserve water and also create power and what have you. But the fact remains is that the the number of dams that are being built in Turkey are having an enormously damaging effect on the likes of local villages and biodiversity, and it's 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 scraping out nature, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even when you know, the dam is there to serve a purpose. Ultimately, what you are doing is you are changing the landscape. You are keeping water back rather than letting it flow or you're diverting it. Um, so it's always going to have an impact on the environment. That's what, you know, ecologists have been saying for a number of years. On the other hand, um, particularly, you know, when we think back 20 years ago to the point when 
Erdogan came into power, um, you know, dams in one sense were being pushed as a kind of greener energy alternative, um, including by the European Union, who were sort of you know, giving out um, loans and all kinds of things to, to um, you know, encourage dam building at that time. And a lot of the dams that Turkey is building are for hydroelectric power. But when we look specifically at Turkey, there's an extra complicating factor, which is that President Erdogan and his government are very, very close to the big construction companies. And these are the companies that are being handed the contracts to build the dam. So there's clearly also kind of political financial interest there as well. Uh, there are also um, calls on people to stop using so much water because of the temperatures and the fact that you know, Turkey has had that, that deadly combination of incredibly high summer temperatures, but not not much rain during the winter either. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a cycle that we're just seeing getting worse and worse over the years. And here in Istanbul um, this week, the, the head of the city's water authority has asked people to cut their water usage by around 10%. That's because the reservoirs that feed Istanbul are at really low levels. They're below 30%. That's the lowest that they've been since 2014. And yeah, I mean, obviously the kind of high temperatures, that's part of the problem. But also... You know, in the winter when, you know, there used to be rain, even snow pretty much every year here in Istanbul, that's just not been happening for the past few years. So, you know, this time in the year when usually the reservoirs would get replenished, that's not happening. How much are people willing to play along with this? I think, you know, the problem is you don't really sort of believe that these things are going to happen until they do. You know, I remember visiting Cape Town a few years ago when they'd got to the point basically where the water had run out. And uh, my friends who I was staying with, you know, they were just doing everything they could to save water. Whenever they took a shower, they were standing in a bucket and then using that water to, you know, wash their clothes or flush the toilet, you know, all these different things. And, you know, once you do have to do that, it really does hit home. But I think until you get to that point, it's just hard to imagine, right? You know, you, water is something that just comes out of the tap when you switch it on. And, um, you know, particularly in, you know, these sort of developed cities, parts of which are incredibly rich, which have a lot of amenities, it's just a very, very odd thing to think might happen. But it is going to happen if people don't change the way they use water. Uh, finally, let's move on to the um, a huge defence contract that's been signed um, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, sure. So um, President Erdogan has been on a drive since the since he was re-elected in May to really kind of boost Turkey's trade deals, uh, particularly in the Gulf. This is, uh, you know, something that he's hoping might bring extra money into Turkey's coffers, which it desperately needs. But in the defence sense, that's really been spearheaded by one company, Baikar. It's the drone manufacturer, which makes the Bayraktar drone, which became very famous in Ukraine. You might have seen um, the Ukrainian soldiers kind of singing songs in praise of it. Um, it Turkey is increasingly looking to export this drone and this week signed a really major deal, one of the biggest deals in Turkish defence history actually, uh, with Saudi Arabia to produce one of Baikar's drones in Saudi Arabia. Now, this comes off the back of other similar deals in places like Kosovo, also with Ukraine. And I think what's really interesting is the way that you know, this company in particular is really becoming quite a key part of Turkey's foreign policy. We should say one important fact is that its chief technological officer, the guy who's seen as the kind of visionary, is also President Erdogan's son-in-law. He clearly off, you know, occupies quite an influential political position. But also, he's been very, very outspoken in his kind of, you know, overall worldview, hugely supportive of Ukraine and, uh, you know, 
condemnatory of Russia. Um, that's in contrast, actually, to, to Erdogan's approach, which is far more sort of, you know, down the middle and trying to keep both sides happy. And when we look at the kind of places where Turkey is selling these drones, they're places that are very much you know, in line with Turkey's own view of itself, you know, Turkey's allies, the places where it wants to build its influence. The, the influence and the allies, though, haven't until quite recently included Saudi Arabia, given the fact that it is, what, nearly five years now since Jamal Khashoggi was, was murdered um, by uh, Saudis in in uh, in Istanbul, sorry, in, in Turkey. Um, just explain to us how much that, I mean, is that ever talked about now? Yeah, I mean, this is a kind of classic Erdogan pivot. It's really not unusual in Turkey to, you know, have something happening one day and then the next day, something completely opposite happening. But you're right. I mean, this rift with Saudi Arabia was deep. It wasn't just about Khashoggi. It was about, you know, all kinds of things, particularly, you know, Turkey's friendship with Qatar, which Saudi Arabia had a very strong relationship with for a long time about Turkey's support for the Muslim Brotherhood. And also as well about the kind of ego of the two leaders, President Erdogan and also Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, both of whom want to be seen as the kind of big leaders of the Sunni Muslim world in very different ways, I have to say, but you know, both want to occupy that position for themselves. Now, you, Erdogan, under Erdogan in the past 10 years, Turkey's relations with most of the Gulf states, actually, not, not just Saudi Arabia, um, has really, really nosedived. But he's trying to turn that around particularly um, you know, principally, as I said, you know, for monetary reasons, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is the hardest to fix, I think. But I think this is, you know, certainly a kind of you know, major step forward. And how much memory is there among Turkish people about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi and, and how deep the rift was? Or is it just something that we naturally move on from? I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's not something that is talked about in the press anymore, which is Incredible, because back when it happened in October 2018, it was all the Turkish press talked about for a really long time. You know, Erdogan's spin doctors really, really made the most that they could out of that murder. Um, you know, they were trying to present Turkey as the kind of champion of free speech, the champion of journalists. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that's really not mentioned very much anymore. And, you know, more broadly also... Erdogan's support for people like Khashoggi, the kind of you know, people from Gulf states linked or, or the rest of the Middle East linked to the Muslim Brotherhood who'd come to Turkey to, you know, find some kind of you know, political asylum almost. You know, they were able to set up media organizations here and think tanks. They're not really getting that much support from Erdogan anymore. Um, you know, as Erdogan's seeking to make up with countries like Saudi Arabia, like Egypt, like the UAE, you know, he's really trying to sort of rein in some of these Muslim Brotherhood exiles who are on Turkish soil. So, yeah, I think certainly attention has turned away in Turkey. Hannah Lucinda-Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the line from a cloudy Istanbul. Um, John Everard, former diplomat, when you listen to what's happening in Turkey and its relationships with Saudi, that sort of cyclical pattern of diplomacy suddenly really shows itself, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, round and round we go. Uh, I mean, it, you, you, given what's going on now, you, you have to pinch yourself to remember the way things were just five years ago uh, with uh, you know, a, a lot more sort of confrontation and you know, the thoughts then that you might have this kind of arm still going on would have been laughed out of court. Uh, I suppose it shows what one politely calls uh, flexibility uh, in both Riyadh and in, in Ankara, uh, that in the end, these people have to live with each other and you do deals.
John Everard, Nina Dos Santos are with me for Monocle on Sunday. We'll be back in a moment. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference is coming to Munich from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. Join Monocle's editors and some of the world's best and brightest in Bavaria for the 8th edition. You'll hear from industry leaders, changemakers and smart thinkers during three days of inspiring conversation and debate. You'll create meaningful connections with 200 dynamic delegates from all around the globe. Discover a city that's full of surprises and offers the opportunity for a dose of mountain air. And you'll enjoy top-notch hospitality and a hearty Bavarian welcome. Head over to monocle.com forward slash events now. back with Monocle on Sunday with me Emma Nelson my guests in the studio Nina Dos Santos and John Everard it's 9.44 here in London Nina what's caught your eye? Well, I've been quite interested in the US political arena because obviously things are heating up as we head towards at the end of the month, that big uh, Republican presidential candidate debate in Milwaukee. And then this weekend, we've got um, the candidates from the Republican parties making speeches in Iowa, which obviously kicks off uh, the primaries there. Um, And at the same time, concomitantly, we've had uh, a change in the pattern of the Department of Justice in the United States now saying that the prosecutor investigating Hunter Biden, so that's Joe Biden, the current president's son, um, has the scope to turn that probe into a grand jury. And that means that um, Hunter Biden can potentially face charges in different states in the United States, which is important because, as we know, the judiciary is politicized in America, in parts of America, in ways that it isn't safe, for instance, here in the United Kingdom. So we've got this really interesting scenario where we've got these three grand juries or special counsels investigating not just Hunter Biden, the current president's son, but then President Joe Biden himself, because remember that there were classified documents that were found in his offices and also in his home in Delaware. And then, of course, Trump's big legal woes that involve at least three cases, like, for instance, the 2020 election um, issues, classified documents, and then um, alleged campaign finance violations in relation to payments made to Stormy Daniels at Adult film actress. Um, So in the meantime, all of that, uh, we know that uh, Ron DeSantis's campaign appears to be floundering a bit. Uh, we don't know whether Donald Trump is going to take part in this Milwaukee debate, but he still seems to be polling at like 54%. So we could have the situation where the two candidates facing each other have legal woes and then one of their sons as well. Not much time for politics then, John. Uh, yes, well, plenty of polls are going on. Uh, yes, Trump polling at 54%, but I think it's important to put those polls alongside other polls that show that rather over 50% of Republican Trump supporters would withdraw their support from Trump if he is indicted. Uh, the support is there, it's big, but it's soft. And it means that if he is, if he gets into a real legal tangle, which is entirely possible given what's going on, then that level of support, that faint 54%, might tumble very quickly. It does seem to me that, I mean, there are big articles going around saying, you know, DeSantis, is this the, the, the last chance saloon? No, it's not. On the 23rd of August, the, the, the big Milwaukee debate, it's not that he has to boost his ratings to anything like Trump's, though that would be nice for him, of course. He has to establish himself as the candidate you go to 
if you don't vote for Trump as the great alternative. And, he's not, and he might do that. He's not doing Indeed. so well at the moment because if you look at the way that the press are covering, for example, his he's, uh, he's at Iowa State Fair this weekend and just glancing at the way that it's covered, it's sort of sweaty. Ron DeSantis, it's so it's Ron DeSantis, so hot, so in, uh, lacking in control, and then Trump Force One decided to fly overhead, and suddenly everyone just went, "Oh, look over there! There's Donald Trump in a massive plane." It, it's really difficult for Ron DeSantis to to actually get a, any kind of toehold. He doesn't have to do well. He simply <laughs> has to do better than the others, and he's doing that. Yes, he is. He's on something like seventeen percent, and you're right that he he could be the candidate who sort of mops it up if indeed Trump. Um, Faces one faces uh, indictments in these types of um, cases that he's stumbles at his legal hurdles, I should say. But there are, in the meantime, and obviously DeSantis has taken on big speech coaches and things like this who've had great success with previous candidates, like I think um, Dick Cheney and George W. Bush, to try and coach him in this debate to make sure, as you said, that he does well enough and isn't convincing enough. But John, do you think that Donald Trump is actually going to make a show at this Milwaukee debate? Because that's the big moot point at this point, isn't it? Yes, isn't it just? And wouldn't we all love to have an answer to that question? I'm not even sure that Donald Trump himself knows whether he's going to make a show. I think he's probably going to keep his cards close to his chest, mull it over and make a last minute decision. Nice nail-biting stuff. He'll steal the show no matter what. Bets if on. he appears. Yes. If he appears. Um, right, let's move on to uh, preparations for the Olympics next year in France. Um, it is obviously that moment when France and in particular Paris shows its beauties off to the rest of the world um, but one of the key elements of French culture, the so-called bouquinistes who have those little stalls on the side of the Seine, they're being told to move Nina and they're not liking it very much That's right but I think they've been told to move multiple times um, mm. in the last 400 years and have not yielded an inch in well, typical French fashion this is the militant literati <laughs> right, it's the type of place where you and I Emma and probably you John as well have sort of picked up our old copy of Post or Standard, you know, a bit dog-eared and felt great pride that we were finally immersing ourselves in hundreds of years of French literary tradition. It just gave me lots of books to take past, take home, which is still sitting on my shelves, um, probably transmitting the contents of fleas to, to absolutely everything else. I mean, have actually, genuinely, have you ever bought anything from the Bouquinist? I have. Oh, yes. oh, yes. Okay, so what have you bought? Because I've, I've gone past and gone... No. <laughs> I think I bought a copy of Gargantua by François Rabelais. Such a good book. Yeah. Riotously funny. I, I, I sort of sad person that I am, bought lots and lots of the little, of the single editions of Corneille plays. The little, oh, uh, the Corneille, yeah, Le Cid. Le, I le, went le, to the French uh, Lycée. They're, they're, not, they're not full of many giggles, John. No, I'd, not I'd full of giggles, Gargantua. but, I, but I, I, I read them all. I, 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 he admitted to the same. The, the but, cultural enrichment around this desk is quite mind-boggling. <laughs> I mean, did you, and you sat down and read them in French? Yes. Okay. And you sat down and read... Yeah, yeah. Into, I, I yeah. was educated in French, so okay. I had, So unfortunately I had to. <laughs> I mean, so, okay, so we're in this slightly rarefied um, group of people, and we'll come to languages in a minute. They, you know, there are three people around this table who really like speaking and reading in foreign languages, but there is this issue, isn't there, that you, you, you hit the point, don't you, Nina, that these guys have been around for 400 yeah. years or however long, and um, there's people like you and I who go and buy the stuff, but does the average Parisian go, no, I'm going to go to the Bouquinis and get something doggy and nasty? Do you know, I'm not sure they do, but remember, these are the types of places that when Emile Zola wrote J'accuse, people would have bought their copy of J'accuse from these bouquinists. That's the cultural importance. It's that they have this sort of um, irreverent... Um, 
place in French society, don't they, to stand up to authority. And this is the exact problem that they have now. The authority is coming along and saying, you have to move along. We will move you from the side of the Seine, even just temporarily, to a sort of literary village along the side of the Seine so that people can see this regatta, this procession going through, and Paris can finally use you know, the flanks of the Seine to, to, to see this beautiful procession on the River Seine. Um, but they're not going to yield an inch. And to be quite honest with you, Napoleon has tackled them. The Nazis <laughs> have tackled them. Um, during the Second World War. Even, I think, during the, the French Revolution, they didn't move on. So it's looking unlikely. It's unlikely that they will win. Mais quand même. Uh, oh, I, hello. I, 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 <laughs> yes, uh, all that is true, but that was a long time ago. If you walk past these stalls now, yes, they'll still sell you books, yeah. but a lot of them really sell just tourist tat at inflated prices that people buy because they bought you know, the, 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 the tinny little model of the Eiffel Tower from the East. I mean, they, they, to claim them as the kind of subversive literary underground is starting to stretch a point, Rana. Yeah, you mean now. you don't have your glow-in-the-dark Eiffel Tower key ring like everybody else? Well, yeah, of, of course I do. Of quite, course quite a do. selection <laughs> of them, in fact. I too have succumbed to the charms of the East. But, but, but moreover, I mean, what is the being asked of them is, dare I say, entirely reasonable. They are blocking the route for the Great Olympic Parade. Does Paris or does it not want the Olympics? Uh, and they are being offered entirely reasonable terms. Move your stores. We will pay for all the move. We will pay to have them all re-established. Absolutely cast iron guarantees. We are not trying to you. And they say non in any case. This verges on the bloody-minded, frankly. Uh, this isn't a great call for liberty. This is just rather reactionary people sticking their heels into the ground and refusing to move at all. I'm going to send, I'm going to dispatch John directly to King's Cross, St Pancras now, to go and sort out the Bouquinis. But when you arrive in Paris, the Gare du Nord, it's better than it was. Let's say you don't send an immediate chance of mugging when you leave, but it's not, let's talk more widely about the issue of, of how Paris is showing itself off publicly and the fact that the Bouquinis, yes, of, of, are a wonderful part of Paris tourism and the whole idea of French soft power is like any other country keyed into your first impression of them. Yeah. And and the Gare du Nord, there was an article in the Times, wasn't there, in the last couple of days, saying the Gare du Nord is still really ropey. Yes, and apparently and, um, it was Andy Burnham, wasn't it, the mayor of uh, Manchester. Um, Manchester? I think it was. It might have been Andy Burnham or it might have been somebody else, Andy Street, um, the mayor of uh, the Midlands. Um, either one of them, a mayor of an important London city <laughs> that doesn't have quite the same cultural uh, finesse as, as Paris, essentially pointed out that the Gare du Nord was so ropey that it gave people a terrible impression of sort of a decaying economy of the whole of France. And um, the Rugby World Cup is about to kick off in September. Then next year, of course, we got the Summer Olympic Games and Paris really isn't showing off its best side. But there were plans to try and revive the Gare du Nord yet again. In 2021, they were shelved because it was going to cost too much money. It's really unclear what they can do about this iconic station. But I remember, and I'm sure you do, John, when the Euro Star was built and it went into Waterloo Station and then without much fanfare suddenly it was moved to King's Cross and that's been a huge revival for that area it's beautiful so this is an opportunity for Paris if they can just get their act together. This is Absolutely. not as bad as it used to be though, I mean it, now I can stay near the Garden Nord, now I can walk around near the Garden Nord, whereas 20 years ago it was an absolute no-go area wasn't it? It was pretty ropey uh, full of rather dubious characters and your ladies of the night uh, who would, would pester you as you walked down the street 
debate um, is not quite that bad now. But one thing that intrigues me about this whole debate is you get, there are two debates going on. One is the English language debate. We referred just now to the article in the Times. The other, uh, listening to French radio uh, yesterday, uh, the, the real debate in France is about what they call l'autre côté, the other side. It is in the order of things. It is the natural order that France is good at big infrastructure projects, yep. whereas the Brits always manage to foul them up. <laughs> the French are confronted with the fact that St Pancras Station is beautiful, well-planned, well-organised, runs smoothly, lots of useful shops, and the station at their end is a complete disaster. This is all. trains r- are good. Their trains their run trains on time. Are good. That's right, their trains run on time. They go zooming in to this place where you have to put an umbrella up in case a concrete block falls on your head. Uh, this is just not the way things should be, and France is deeply distressed. And also maybe I wonder whether it doesn't care so much because the train to London, well, where's London anymore if you're living in the European Union? Um, speaking of which, and looking outwards, there is an article in the Times which you can touch briefly on the last couple of minutes about the fact that we don't learn languages anymore, which is kind of heartbreaking for three people who enjoy languages. And I think if you if you if you're interested in Monocle, you have an outward facing look. And now we have a United Kingdom, which people are saying is full of little Englanders because kids aren't children aren't learning languages. No, I think around this table we've all agreed that we speak French and we also have all learned German as well and some of us are quite passionate about um, German. It was one of the, my favourite languages I learned. It was the third one I learned. I learned it in French, by the way, actually. Um, but sadly, in the Times, um, it appears as though there's been a dearth of students who are willing to study French and German. The numbers of people taking French A-level, so that's your exams at the end of high school, has plummeted. But when it comes to German, it's really at perilous levels. And funnily enough, I was talking to a friend of mine who's Swiss-German in the pub the other day in German, bemoaning the fact that she's the only person I can speak to, apart from John Everett, who speaks much better German than I do, who can speak German. And I think the numbers are down to like two and a half thousand people studying German and at this, advanced level. And this I want Wonder, well, sorry to interrupt you, Neil, because we've got one minute. This, I wonder, John, is symptomatic of two things. One, obviously, we have a, a more inward-looking United Kingdom. But secondly, there is no obligation to learn language at, at GCSE, one of the exam you take when you're 16 here in the UK. And private schools do still do foreign languages. So will learning a language be the, the prize of the privileged the people whose parents can afford to make you learn at another language. And as a result, you know, as a former diplomat, what does that mean for Britain's world with a re- relationship with the rest of the world? To, to have a relationship with the rest of the world, you need to be able to speak different languages. That, that's that's quite clear. Uh, I, will it be the preserve the privilege? I'm not so sure. I see a cycle here. I mean, way back in the early 1970s, we had a similar debate where, uh, although people were being taught almost entirely French at that time, uh, we realised that, that nobody exactly actually come out of a British school speaking French. I mean, the quality of teaching was absolutely abysmal and there were no modern technical aids. I suspect that we are at the nadir of this cycle and that with a shock, the country will realise that we do actually need to learn languages and that even though they're not compulsory, that you'll have an uptick in secondary school students studying them possibly to, to A-level. How are we going to fit that into a into an education system, though, which is stretched to, to, to breaking point now? The way you always do when you introduce new or revive subjects in an educational system, you put in the teachers, and there's any number of uh, underemployed language teachers around the country right now, and provide the proper facilities. Yes, it's going to cost money, but yes, it's got to be done.
John Everard, Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. That's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. And thanks also to Petri Burtsoff and Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Uh, thanks too to the producer Desiree Bandley and our studio manager Callum McLean. Monocle on Sunday returns next week, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening and enjoy your Sunday. <laughs>